0: This plenary, Good Guardrails, by Adam Bloom, was presented at Veritas's Community Training 2023. Enjoy. So as John mentioned, there we are. Okay. All right. So as John mentioned, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Adam Bloom. I'm the upper school principal here. My seventh year, uh, my wife and I, Alex, we have three kids. Uh, two of them are here at Veritas, our oldest, is in fifth grade, and our uh, middle son is in second grade, and we still have um, a daughter at home. And if you're looking at this title, the subtitle does say Embracing Legalism, um, which might comes as a shock. A lot of times if we hear the word legalism, um, we think surely this will be a talk about like freedom from legalism, or why legalism is bad, or something along those. We have a lot of associations and connotations with it, um, but... That's not a typo, right? That's what I'm going to be talking about me, arguing for um, the need to embrace rules, to embrace the law, to embrace, um, in some sense, legalism. I thought I would challenge myself a little bit more with um, the controversy of my talks this year. Um, so that's why my breakout session is also like what we can learn from Satan. Um, so <laughs> there's, a little, there's a little plug from that. So, embracing legalism, and then our an hour, lessons from Satan. Here we go. <laughs> this summer, my family and I had a chance to go out to Colorado. It's a trip that we try to take annually, to visit my in-laws. And one of the things that uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law did for family is they bought us tickets to go on the cog railway um, up Pikes Peak. Uh, so similar to the one that John mentioned, Pikes Peak is another fourteen thousand foot. Um, mountain in the middle of um, I think we we're there late June. There's still snow on top, and so you you know start and you're in your shorts and short sleeve shirts. And the time you get up there, you're, um my kids are having a snowball fight, which was kind of cool. And they paid for us to go up on this railway, and and the Cog railway has been in existence for a long time. It was recently refurbished, and as you can kind of see in the picture, you get in and. About an hour ride or so, and it takes you up to the top. And I was talking to my father in law about this, and he said that he had gone up to the top of Pikes Peak um, differently just a few years ago with his oldest, um, with his oldest son. And instead of taking the cord railway up, they drove up. And I asked him, Well, like how, what was that like? He said, Well, it was a little bit different. I said, oh, Okay, like, how so? He's like, Well, it was a little bit more nerve-wracking, a little bit more anxious. Um, it was hard to just kind of sit back and enjoy the trip to the top. I said, "Why? Why is that?" He said, "Well, there are no guardrails as you ascend to the top of the mountain." And I thought, "Well, that's really interesting. How he didn't say it quite in these words, but what he was arguing is that." Having the guardrails actually enabled him to do something better. And the thing that he was able to do better was to enjoy the reason why he was there. Which is to focus on the beauty of the mountains surrounding. And this is, this is not a claim about like driving up or not driving up or thrill seeking or not thrill seeking or hiking or not hiking. But, what I want to argue today is that the presence of guardrails, that the presence of the law enables us to pursue the good. So, we're talking a lot about the good this morning, and John gave us a definition of, kind of what that is and several examples of the good. And now I want to talk about an idea of how do we pursue that good and maybe go through a lens that for some of you may make a lot of sense for some of you it may sound controversial because it's not at all what you're used to when thinking about our relationship with christ and we're going to do it in the format of just taking you through my own journey of kind of understanding my relationship to the law and how that has changed over the past 15 to 20 years and if you find yourself being encouraged by that challenged, convicted great if not that's fine, and I really want to clearly kind of put this and paint this in the picture of that, this is, this is my journey, and I do hope that you find something edifying and sanctifying through this. I want to start with a quote from Chesterton. I, I love, there's gonna be several points. I was, I was listening to Nori talk this morning, and then John talked, I was like, it is amazing how many things just overlapped I did not ask John for his presentation. I did not ask Nori for her presentation beforehand. And I just find it incredible how many points are exactly the same. So you're gonna hear some similar things. This is from Chesterton's Orthodoxy about this idea of guardrails. He says, we might fancy some children playing on the flat, grassy top of some tall island in the sea. So long as there was a wall around the cliff's edge, they could fling themselves into every frantic game and made the place the noisiest of nurseries. But the walls were knocked down, leaving the naked peril of the precipice. They did not fall over. But when their friends returned to them, they were all huddled in terror in the center of the island. And their song had ceased. I want to use this quote to set the stage that Chesterton is arguing here, that contrary to often how we view the law and how we view rules and how we view guardrails, that these things actually enable the children to be more of who they were created to be, rather than the other way around. I want to start and kind of take you through my own personal journey. When I was in... um, In college, as kind of the starting point of of where I'm going to start through my own journey. I was very big on Christian liberty. And I had my definition of Christian liberty. And this is not to make a specific claim about any tradition or um, doctrinal statements, but again, this is how I thought about it. I was brought up in in the Reformed tradition. The church that I went to was very strongly... um, Calvinistic in a lot of ways, and I really focused on this idea of predestination. And so the idea of um, having any sort of, um, you will be told of what to do or what not to do really, really against me, because I thought, well, then that sounds like I have to do something. That sounds like that's taking me away from the freedom that I have in Christ. And so my early journey, my relationship with the idea of, of law and of guardrails is very much centered upon this idea of Christian liberty, that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And you can see which one I like to focus on more. When I was in my 20s, and even early into my 30s, I really understood the all things are permissible part. I didn't really understand, but not all things are beneficial. And I clung to that, because I thought, well, if I am a Christian, and if I am free in Christ, then I cannot have these sorts of restraints put upon me. Well, that's just my idea of freedom, as I look back on it, was really more of an American idea of freedom. Very strongly formed by how I think of freedom in American culture. Maybe this will sound familiar to a lot of you. I think that the American idea of freedom, I know this is going to be some small uh, font, if you can't see it, I apologize. Um, a lot of the idea of the American ideal of freedom is inherited from the Enlightenment. And a key Enlightenment figure, Immanuel Kant, has a document that he says, what is Enlightenment? Our students read this in 10th grade. And he asks, what is the Enlightenment? And the summary that he comes to says that the Enlightenment is a call to courage. And he he his audience, he says, dare to know. Think for yourself. Don't let anyone else tell you what to think or how to think. But think for yourself. And this sounds great on one hand. It's like, sure, we want our students to think critically. But is think critically completely on their own. Do whatever you have come to do, and as long as you have arrived at that conclusion in sort of a rationally coherent, honest, genuine way, then it's okay. And it doesn't matter what the point is. I think this is a lot of where our founding our country thought of, and this is how I thought of freedom. If we looked at the, the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right to the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Not going to make a political statement at all right now, but if you think about what that definition of freedom is, it is a, to allow people to choose, to think, to act for themselves with limited or no involvement or intervention. That is the definition in which freedom that I have been operating on is sort of come to my own conclusion. And so therefore, the law really only had one primary purpose and then maybe a second one if I was lucky. The primary purpose of why I had a law and even in the Christian law, I think of the law, the Mosaic law or the law in Christ was primarily to function as a restraint. That was the purpose of the law. It was to function as a restraint, which meant that it was there to prevent my sin. It was there to keep me safe. This is actually what I see a lot in the couple of times that I've taught our academy class or Sunday school class at my church or children's church, and I have a lesson we'll do on the 10 commandments, and sometimes they'll ask them to be thinking about rules in their house and why God gives us rules, and pretty much hands down, Everything that uh, that the the children initially say, they view the law as a negative function. As in, it doesn't do something positively for you, but rather it keeps negative things from you. You ask them, why does, you know, why do mom and dad have these rules for you? To keep me safe, right? And sure, it's positive, but they primarily think of it in ways of like to prevent bad things from happening. And with this idea of freedom as trying to you know, all things being permissible in Christ and kind of doing um, what I thought and and chose for myself, the law kind of only had a purpose of restraining me. And then maybe it had a purpose of being a mirror, right? That the law was there just so I could know how bad I was. Now, I'm not disagreeing with that, right? I need to know how sinful I am so that I can look to Christ. What I am starting to argue then is that And then there's a third option for how we ought to view the law. But initially, this is how I viewed it. It's there to maybe restrain some evil, keep me safe, and just to kind of make sure I'm aware of how sinful I am. I realized that kind of combining all of these things of how I viewed my Christian liberty, of how I viewed freedom, of how I viewed the law, that essentially had boiled down salvation to one thing. And that for me, for a long time, even though I probably would not have said this, salvation is getting in. If I had to think about why Jesus came to die, I would think, well, so I can get in to heaven. And I have reduced salvation to merely an ability to be forgiven from my sins. Notice I say merely. It is about forgiveness of sins. But I had reduced it to only being about forgiveness of sins. And I think it is so much more than that. And so I began to wrestle through um, other parts of Scripture that just didn't seem to fit. I have thought about freedom in this way. I have thought about the law in this way. I have thought about salvation in this way. And the more I started to think through different parts of Scripture, that didn't make sense with how I was viewing the role of the law in my life. It didn't make sense to me that this is how Jesus talks about the law. With my previous worldview and the way I thought about freedom of the law, I would have expected Jesus to say, yes, I came to abolish it. You are now free from it. But he doesn't say that. He says, I've not come to abolish the law. i come to fulfill it. And then, actually, for the whole Sermon on the Mount, after that, he talks about, in chapters, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, he talks about, then, all these laws that you should do and what their point is. How you should pray, how you should fast, how you should give alms, how you should view your neighbor and be merciful to them. This doesn't make sense with the way that I view the law of being free from all these things. It sounds like Jesus is saying that I should do these things. And I was struggling with that. And I was trying to think through that. And that didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense that as I read scripture, there's a whole lot of biblical imperatives. I'll be honest, for a long time, and I still don't know if I really know how to, but for a long time, I did not know what to do with these. Because all of these sound like someone is telling me to do something. Philippians 2 therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more absence work out work out your own salvation with fear and trembling didn't know what to do with that one. colossians 3 if then you've been raised with christ seek the things that are above where christ is seated at the right hand of god set your minds on things that are above not on the things of earth. 1 Peter 1, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Romans 6, Do not present yourselves, uh, do not present your members as sin, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Imperative, 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 imperative. I did not know how to think about this, and I certainly didn't know how to even begin to think about how to put this into practice, because my views of freedom, my views of the law, my views of salvation, um, not necessarily wrong, but incomplete. Which is again, some of the aspects of the law being restrained are not wrong, but it's incomplete. Salvation being about forgiveness of sins is not wrong, but it's so much more than that. So I realized that I needed to look at freedom from a different perspective. I needed to see what does it actually mean to be free from what I think scriptures are talking about. And it's really fascinating because if you approach the scriptures as an American, there are several statements in there that make very little sense, make very little sense. If I approach the scriptures from an American sense of freedom, which kind of means limit the rules that are set upon me. Actually, this is very strange. Because God says, right? Um, oh sorry, actually I need to back up real quick to have minutes in the slide. The first thing is that it's not about the individual, right, and think for yourself. Paul says this clearly, right? He's actually not thinking for himself. Right? He doesn't dare. He says, I have received from the Lord and I hand this down to you. He's not out there kind of saying, well, Paul, what do you think about it? He says, this is what Christ told me and this is what I right, passed down. Within the Christian tradition, um, creative thinking has largely been discouraged. If you're creative, you're probably heretical, right? And you are outside of what has been passed down. If you are saying something that has never been said before within the Christian church, you should check yourself. It's probably wrong. Right? And so I needed to rework my biblical definition of freedom. But then back to my previous point, I was viewing um, freedom as an American and not biblically. And there's a strange thing that happens in in Exodus if you view it as an American. Because God just says, um, I'm Lord your God and I have set you free, right? I have, I have redeemed you from slavery, from the house of Egypt. And then the very next thing he does is he gives them a bunch of rules. I have set you free and now here's all the things you can and can't do. And I kind of read over and it's like, as an American, I was like, that is strange to me. And I can kind of get the ones like, don't kill, I can get on board with that as an American, right? I mean, you know, like generally we have laws in this country that's like, hey, you know, don't go around killing people. Don't steal, I can get around that. And that makes sense to me. You ever look at the first commandment and see how in Congress it is with the first amendment? They do not fit together. First amendment, worship whoever you want. I don't care, right? I mean, the founding fathers, a lot of them, not all of them, but a good number of them would go to, to, to points to, to ridicule, the ridiculousness of Christianity. Thomas Paine, in particular, was um, very famous for doing that. He's like, this is, this is dumb, this makes no sense. But he was adamant, like, hey, if you believe this, sure, go ahead. I'm going to let you do it. The first commandment says, do not worship whomever you want. Worship the Lord your God Period. You don't have a freedom in the way we think of it You don't have a freedom to think for yourself and to choose for yourself and to go for yourself He says actually if you want to be free This is what you do and so biblical freedom is not the ability to think necessarily for oneself and act for oneself and dare to know the way the Enlightenment says, but rather it is living as you were created to live. As John was talking about earlier, there is a form and there is something that is not formed. And God has given us forms. And you are more free when you live in that form as opposed to when you think to decide your own form. I think we're seeing some of the fruits of the culture today. I'm not gonna get too much on the sidetrack of this, but we're seeing the fruits of that somewhat today in our own culture with gender issues, right? If you love your child, you will let them be free to decide what they want to be. That is not biblical. That is not biblical. God says you are most free when you do what you were created to do. And that's why there's actually um, servant and slave language that's used to describe our union with Christ. You are not free to go off on your own path. If Christ has bought you, he says, you are mine, and this is the best thing for you. St. Augustine says this, and we say this, um, this is part of our upper school uh, catechism, upper school students say this um, every morning, not necessarily the whole thing, um, but they cycle through the quotes and the quotes focus through the virtues. And our quote from Temperance from St. Augustine says, I am free to do good. I am not the slave of my desires. The good man, though a slave, is free. The wicked, though he reigns, is a slave and not the slave of a single man, but what is worse, the slave of as many masters as he has vices. St. Augustine recognizes that, um, as I think scripture does, that you are always enslaved to something. There is actually no sense of freedom in the way that we think of it, um, or in the way our American culture inherited from the Enlightenment wants to think about it. You're free if you go off and do your own thing. Scripture says, no, you are always a slave to something. The question is, who do you want to be a slave to? You can be a slave to a good master, or you can be a slave to a whole mess of vicious masters. But there is no in-between. And so, actually, freedom then is saying, I want to be a slave to a good master. I don't want to be a slave to a bunch of vicious masters. So then I started thinking then, is the law restraint? Yes, it is. It can restrain me from making bad decisions. Is the law a mirror? Yes, it is. Can it show me that I'm a sinner, that I need Christ? Absolutely. But so, not just additionally, it's a guide. Right? It, It is a guide of showing me what to do and who to be. If you think of the difference between a restraint and a guide, a restraint, imagine someone in, um, in actual physical restraints, right? If that person is actually physically restrained, there's no place for that person to go. There's no direction. The point of the restraint is simply just that they don't go somewhere. Right? But a guide says, The point of this is to go to this goal, or to this end, and I will help you get there. Right, this is bumper bowling for religion, right? The point of bumpers is to not just say, hey, so you don't do whatever, it is to help you hit the mark. It is there to help you get from point A to point B and it is recognized as a good thing. Well this started, as I started thinking about um, the law in this way and freedom in this way, this started to make a lot more sense to me of Psalm 19. Psalm 19 was always very confusing for me before. Because the psalmist here, David, speaks so highly of the law he delights in it that was hard for me because before when I only think of the, the law as something I was freed from it was always just a sense of like a burden and now I have here David telling me that it is something to delight in because look at what the law does it revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes. For Paul, or sorry, for for, uh, for David, the law is a gift. It is not a burden. It is not um, a curse, right? Does he know that he's imperfect, that he needs a savior? Yeah, I think even David knew that even though he's before Christ incarnates himself. But he recognized that this is a good thing. And so I realized that I actually need a better understanding of what salvation is. Where before I always thought about salvation as just about getting in, I now have to think about salvation is being united to Christ in all of its richness it's not just about slipping in through the back door. God doesn't desire for people to come to his mansion in through the back door, right? As if through some cheat code, they manage to slip in. He desires us to come in the fullness of being united to his son, which makes us then children who are feasting at his table. I would always be troubled for a long time about hypothetical theological questions such as if someone was stuck on a desert island and they had no contact with anyone else, could God save that person? You ever I don't know, ask, think about that question, or I don't know, this is what I, I guess when you're a theology major, like this is what you think about, right? Um, and I I hate that question. I am just like I hate that question so much now. Can God sure I don't mean that flippantly, I don't mean that decisively, but yes, I believe that God is sovereign, but we, I would end up using his sovereignty as an excuse for the normative measures that God would give us in scripture. God doesn't deal with, um, in in the norm, let me say it this way, in the norm of how scripture God doesn't deal with hypothetical situations of what if someone is stuck on a desert island? He deals to say, like this is to be the norm of how Christians ought to live. And this is what salvation looks like. And salvation is being united to your Lord and Savior and enjoying all of the richness that then the good things he has for you. That is what salvation is. Right? It is being united. Him is taking his burden, taking his yoke, and not as a burden, but something that's easy, something that's light, something that is good. So I realized I needed a, a better definition of legalism. When I first thought of legalism, I kind of thought, when I, when I was preparing this talk about this, I'm going to the basic definition of, of legalism. I'm going to go with the dictionary. Why not? Legalism is a strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or religious or moral code. Merriam-Webster kind of clearly has a native definition of it. Look at those first three words, strict, legal, excessive. It like progresses towards how bad it is, right? Gets worse and worse and worse. And this is how I thought about it. But as I realized I needed to change the way I approached the law and approached legalism, I had to ask myself, well, sure, like, okay, maybe someone's being strict, legal, or excessive, but to what end? And I started realizing that there are a lot of things that we don't necessarily think are legalistic. And we kind of see this morally. If an athlete is training for an event and they create a rigid schedule for themselves, if they say, hey, I gotta get up and train because I have this goal, I have this event, I don't think many people wouldn't say, stop being so legalistic, right? If someone goes on um, a diet to improve their health, and they just have a strict resume because this is what makes them the most healthy and formed that they can be in the way that their body will function. I don't think we stop and say, "Stop being so legalistic," right? Just like I need water. Um, when the struggling alcoholic knows himself and says, "I can't be around alcohol," oh, John, I got some. I got some. I just gotta. I just had to find it for a moment. I, my wife hooked me up earlier, so. I appreciate that. Um, if the struggling alcoholic says, I can't be around alcohol, we don't look to them and say, Stop being legalistic. Right? If they, I'm doing it, doing it. I need some a little promotion there. Oh, sorry, I'll drink it this way. Yeah, okay. Um, if a young man, if a teenage boy or young man puts a filter blocker on his web search, I don't think we looked at him and say, stop being legalistic. And so we have to ask ourselves, yes, it can be a strict or literal following the law, but to what end? And so I had to wrestle through with myself. Um, kind of one obvious question that maybe a lot of you are thinking right now. Letalism equals Pharisees, Pharisees equal bad. So now I've got to kind of remove the middle part of that equation and show, okay, yes, but let's talk about this. Another take, so just doing lots of hard things here, I'm going to defend literalism. I'm going to defend the Pharisees for a moment. Here we go. (laughs) Letoism, Pharisees, Satan. We got a good trifecta here. Um, In order to understand what was so bad about the Pharisees and why Jesus has a problem with them, we need to understand where the Pharisees came from. Because remember he ends up, uh, Jesus judges them, he says, you have built up so many laws around laws, around laws, around laws, And you are keeping people, that's the Gentiles. You are keeping them from coming to me because of your laws. This is a completely misguided effort by the Pharisees, but if we understand where they came from, it makes sense. Because if you look back, what happens, remember all these uh, laws in the Old Testament that says you shouldn't mix and mingle with other cultures because if you do, you're gonna start worshiping their their gods and their idols. So what happened when Israel started mixing with the foreign nations? They started worshiping idols, and then God sent them into exile. When they finally come back on exile, Ezra and Nehemiah, what starts happening again? They intermarry again, and they start worshiping the idols. And so, Phariseeism comes from this place of saying, okay, we've been into exile multiple times, and we've had this intertestamental period of silence. We really don't want to mess it up again. We want to make sure that we stay separate. And they create law upon law and upon law and upon law. But what happened then is they got so obsessed with that, they forgot what the original point of the law was. This is what Jesus tells us, and he boils it all down. Every single law, what's the point of it? Love God. Love your neighbor. Even those really strange ones in the Old Testament about how you um, uh, have to build a, a, um, a ledge um, on your roof. Like, you're responsible, to, you know, you have to do that if you're in um, Israel in the ancient world. You're like, what does that law have to do anything? People are hanging up on the roofs. I mean this is this is Bathsheba, right? Like this was normal. And so if you're a homeowner, you need to build a ledge. Because if someone goes up there and falls off, it's not just their fault. It's your fault. My old testament professor said the application for this it doesn't make sense in Greenville anymore, but in Chicago, he said the point of this they take from is I need to love my neighbor by shoveling the sidewalk in front of my house when it snows. makes no sense here, right? So there's this thing when it gets cold and it like, comes down from the sky. You guys think the world is ending when it happens. right? Anyway, it's called snow, right? It's beautiful. Um, he says, if I don't shovel the area in front of it, I have failed to love my neighbor. It's not about just doing it for no reason. This is what Jesus reminds us. The Pharisees forgot that. So Phariseeism and what we call bad legalism focuses on excluding others, right? it focuses on judging others, and it focuses on elevating yourself, because how perfect. Right? But my encouragement for us today is that just because something can be done wrongly, as it was with the Pharisees, doesn't mean then that we have to swing the other direction like I did when I was younger. Just because the Pharisees abused the point of the law doesn't mean that in order to avoid that trap, I have to swing them to the complete other end of the pendulum and say, well, therefore, I'll just get rid of all the law because all things are permissible. That wisdom finds a middle road. That wisdom finds a place to go that avoids both pitfalls and both extremes. So my point is that there is such a thing as, I think, good legalism. I want to talk a little bit about practical examples um, in a little bit. But legalism is an adherence to the law as a means to pursue righteousness. That the law is a gift, as a guardrail that can direct you towards the fullness of being united to Christ, that he intends for us, and that is a good thing, because it takes us to a right end. It doesn't take me to the end of puffing up myself. It doesn't take me to the end of excluding my neighbors. It doesn't take me to the end of judging them, because I don't think they're as holy as I am. It takes me to the end of being united with Christ, I want to end with a very practical approach, this idea of the law being a gift and a means for us to pursue the good. I've been trying this idea of keeping a rule for myself. This is um, keeping a law for myself. This is what monks used to do. Um, they have a voluntary opportunity to lay down certain, um, certain of their rights in a way to pursue righteousness. And so what I'm talking about here is is nothing that is commanded by God directly, but rather as an opportunity for me to create a rule for myself, to help me pursue what God has commanded. And actually a lot of you are already familiar with this, especially in the evangelical community. If you've ever been in a small group or a church that has fixated on morning devotions, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you will not find that in scripture. You will not find the idea that the Christian has to wake up at this time and have quiet time. But we've kept that because we understand for a lot of us that if I don't do something right away in the morning, it won't happen. And so we set rules for ourselves, disciplines for ourselves, habits for ourselves, because you know yourself. Because that rule of saying, I need to get up at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., whatever it is, and do this thing, or otherwise it won't happen, is helping you fulfill what God has commanded, which is worship him. He hasn't commanded that every Christian across the nation at all time has to get up at 6 a.m. and do quiet time. But he has said that everyone has to worship him, because he is the God that set you free. Does having a rule like that help you do that? For a lot of it, it does.
1: I'm going to share a couple
0: aspects of personal, um, some of my personal rules. So um, I talked to my wife, I was like, I'm really nervous about this part. Because um, this is where you just say, hey, here's what I'm struggling with, and so here's a rule that I've created to help me pursue means of righteousness. And so, you know, there's some that we, like, maybe don't share that, maybe share, you know, right? So here we go. Um, But this is is still going to be kind of a humbling part. Um, It has to start with prayer and reflection and confession. You have to know yourself. You have to know yourself. Because the rule that I have for myself to help me pursue Christ will not necessarily make sense for someone else. And that's why I can't use my rule to exclude someone else or to judge them. Because that then slips into Phariseeism, right? But I have to know myself. And one great tip is if you have a a church that does a confession in the middle of the service where the opportunity to silently reflect and confess, when, um, when the priest or the pastor says, hey, let's confess our sins, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? There's probably a reason why that's the first thing that pops into your mind. It's probably the Holy Spirit saying this. This is what you need to work on. And so pursue that and follow that. Um, and it changes. It changes throughout your life. 20 years ago, if I was going through the seven vices, probably like any young man, i had been like, lust, that's it, right? That's all I struggle with, right? <laughs> and as it gets you older, know, I feel like it only gets diceier because now I look at all seven vices, and I'm like, I do all of them. And I really struggle with all of them. So I wanna just give an example. Um, We talked about what the rule is for and what it's not for. Um, Two rules I've developed myself as I thought about my sloth, as I thought about my gluttony. Um, We'll do sloth first. Um, So this is is my humbling part because there's a lot of people in this room that I go to church with. Um, But here I go. Um, I can have a really hard time choosing to pay attention to what my pastor is talking about in the sermon. And that is a conscious choice I make because it borders on sloth and it borders on pride. Because I think, well, instead of listening to him, I'm just going to sit here and read this other book of the Bible. That's sloth. And if you're not sure how is that sloth, because sloth is um, not just being lazy. But it's not doing the work that God has called you to do in that moment. You can be a workaholic and be slothful. And I've had to learn about myself. Because you can always justify and say, but I'm doing something. But is it the work that God is calling you to do right now? And I would justify and say, oh, but I have this question I'm pursuing. In order to do so, I need to sit here and read through Colossians. and not That's an actual example from a few weeks ago. I need to sit here and read through Colossians rather than listen to what my pastor saying. So I have to create a rule for myself. And the question is, what allows me to pursue the work that God has ordained me? And for me, it's taking notes. That might sound like such an obvious thing, but if I don't, if I don't physically start writing down what my pastor is saying, my mind will go. And that came just from knowing myself and being honest with myself. Another rule I started toying with uh, is as I thought about gluttony. is um, the way I viewed alcohol. I'm going to try to get this out before I get fired. Um, (laughs) I would really enjoy coming home from work and having a beer. Just one, right? Maybe two, if it's particularly hard. But this was not a realization of, wow, I am getting drunk at home. I wasn't. But this was a realization that a habit of mine became so focused on this thing that I started to view as a right and not as a gift. It got to a point where whenever I would see, I'm sorry, whenever my, my daughter, she was three at the time, would see me go out to grill food, she would run to the fridge and grab me a beer. Adorable, but I started getting a little bit concerned <laughs> that this is what my children think, oh dad always does this. I said, I don't want, I don't want that. I don't want to grow up, or sorry, my kids grow up and think, oh yeah, dad was just always, whatever. So like, I need a rule for myself. My rule is simple. I don't drink during the week. Are there exceptions, special events, You know, dinner with friends? Like, sure, of course. And that's an important part of this, is there's always exceptions. Wisdom always allows for exceptions. But but God also deals in the normative. In my normative, I had to set this rule because I knew myself. That doesn't have to be your rule, right? It's not supposed to be your rule. God does not command that anywhere in Scripture. But he does command, I think, to recognize gifts, to use your money wisely, right? Um, And I needed a rule with, to help me view something rightly as a gift and from the good gift giver. And I don't have to judge other people for having something else, because God knows the heart and I don't. And when you do this, and this has come up a whole bunch, be prepared that you're going to fail. You're going to fail. Right? But just like we encourage our children to keep going when they fail, the spirit sustains us. The spirit sustains us as we as we are united with Christ and pursue righteousness. Because I'm going to fail. But just because I'm gonna fail, that doesn't mean I chuck the whole system and say, I don't really want to bother to pursue righteousness anymore. I want to end um, with, with one more quote, and I'm gonna point out to uh, Nori that I successfully made it through a whole plenary without mentioning he who shall not be mentioned <laughs> once. And so I thought, since I can't use my favorite book, I'll go to one of my other favorite books. I know some of you hate this book, I'm sorry. 2 are sitting right here. Lee, the character Lee talking to the perfectionistic character in East of Eden gives us this advice. And now that you don't have to be perfect, You can be good. You are free to pursue good. Because it's not your job to be perfect. Christ has done that for you. And you don't have to do it. But he has a treasure of heaven waiting for you if you are united to him. And he has good things to be united to him. And so we don't have to be perfect. But we can be free to pursue the good. Thank you so much.